This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Morning of the Magicians Goes Delta Green. The Return of the Gothic Horror Film. Our Favorite Great Old Ones. And the Final Vote of the Prince Electors. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice and the thump of miniatures and the excited expression of Peter Frampton coming alive tells us we're once more in the beautiful modern parquet floored confines of the gaming hut. And this time around, uh, the gaming hut, I believe it's taking on a sort of a a cool early 60s vibe, as if it knows that the next uh, segment will also do the exact same thing. I think we've gone into black and white even. There's a bit of a, a French New Wave uh, thing happening in the gaming head even. There's some music by Georges Delarue because uh, beloved Patreon backer Daniel Feidelman asks, how should we proceed to build a Fall of Delta Green campaign around the morning of the magicians. Um, so, Ken, this tips everyone off to why I'm throwing the gaming hut this week, because uh, you are the one who knows both about Fall of Delta Green and about uh, Morning of the Magicians. We've talked about that a lot on the show. But uh, to recap, uh, this is a 1960 book by Louis Powells and Jacques Bergier, uh, which is uh, sort of a font of uh, conspiracy occult uh, weirdness that uh, that continues to this day. Indeed, it does. Uh, it is a a seminal text. A lot of people say that the the New Age began with uh, Chariots of the Gods or with Starhawk. But I'm here to tell you, the New Age as a body of theory pretty much kicks off in the West with Matin de la Magicians or Morning of the Magicians by Louis Powell's and Jacques Bergier. And, uh, this was, um, it, it is still, it's still in print. You can buy it tomorrow. You can buy it now. Please don't buy it now. Listen to the podcast that we, we put this together for you. It's a, it's a gallimaufry of, uh, strange, but true facts, uh, conspiratorial eyes on history. It's wrapped around the sort of thesis that if Nazi Germany disassociated itself so completely from the consensus reality of Western science and morality and was yet able to make 
wonder weapons and nearly conquer the world. That implies that consensus science and reality only can take you so far. And not that Powell's and Bergier were Nazis, far from it. Uh, Bergier was a resistance hero who was tossed in the Mauthausen concentration camp at the last year of the war. Um, so they just were sort of more in alarm that if, you know, good people didn't uh, wake up, uh, to the, to the new realities, then bad people were going to keep, uh, stumbling on it and do bad things. So it's, it's, a I mean, like I say, uh, Bergier was a, a chemist by background and then, like I say, a, a resistance fellow. And then Powell's was a journalist. So neither of them were historians or anthropologists, but they, together had a lot of uh, neat facts and factoids that they uh, brought together and then put in this sort of larger rubric questioning the uh, consensus reality. And in a way that appealed to readers more than sort of stodgy old Rosicrucianism or any of the other alternative ways of seeing. And again, obviously you can go to some a book like James Webb's Occult Establishment and Occult Underground and say that you know, the supposed stranglehold of rationality on mankind has never been that great. Uh, there's always been countercultures and counterforces and people who believe nonsense in surprisingly influential uh, positions of power. And yet those of us who believe in consensus reality keep being surprised. <laughs> yes. Well, perhaps. We turn perhaps. our backs for a second and, oh, look what's happened to consensus reality again. Right. Damn it. Yep. How, how did that happen? Who knew? Anyways, the book sort of brought enough of the sort of burgeoning UFO, uh, secret histories, new look at prophecy, quantum physics. Uh, this is one of the earliest books to say, you know, physics itself is no longer reliable, uh, much as Einstein worried what happened when quantum physics got out. And another uh, thread of the book is uh, our buddy H.P. Lovecraft, who is sort of positioned in Morning the Magicians as a prophet of these new times. And he is one of the, perhaps one of the titular magicians who are making this the morning uh, of the new age. And uh, it, you hear this ever more uh, in the 70s and 80s, but even at this point, we're, we're getting into the age of Aquarius, and that is uh, the new age. So Morning the Magicians sort of sets off that time bomb in Europe. Right, in, and it's following uh, a French tradition that uh, of uh, uh, Camille Flammarion, who we meet in uh, The Yellow King, uh, is an exemplar of where the uh, line between the serious scientist and the paranormalist uh, was not uh, nearly as uh, clearly driven in France as it was uh, in the Anglosphere. And so this is uh, also, it's not just a, a brand new thing, but it's a continuance of a tradition that goes back uh, into the uh, Belle Epoque. Right. And again, they themselves do not say that they're doing anything new. They, uh, among their other visionary forebears, besides H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, was uh, Charles Fort. And they very deliberately took his books as a model to uh, imply that all of these uh, wonderful new facts that are that are bubbling up, they may be, uh, in, in their words, a lot of silliness, but they're meant to stir up a few vocations and open up new fields of research and that sort of scientizing, but not at all scientific approach uh, is again, something that like you say is, is very common to the French uh, occult universe. And is there a perspective essentially like that of forts where it is heavily suggestive of weird or supernatural activity, but they are not 
coming fully down as uh, believers or are they full on believers? Their presentation is very much the journalist who is questioning the truth. Uh, they do not ever in the book sort of lay out. This is the kind of magic that works. And this is the kind of magic that doesn't work. It's not a, a, a textbook in that way. It's not a new anthropology, but it is meant to be a new epistemology. And they're very much in the spirit of maybe not everything in our book is true, but if any of it is true, what you believe certainly isn't true. So we are starting from the same, you know, uh, philosophical framework. Right. But plenty of people who are looking uh, to ditch consensus reality, get a hold of it and uh, build upon it. And that's why it's sort of the the turning point in the beginning of, of the new age. And it's very interesting that this is happening in 1960 for a big cultural reason. As we'll say, not for the first time in this episode, there's something in the water at this point. There's something in the, in the cultural undercurrent. And conveniently, of course, 1960 is also the first year of the fall of Delta Green period. So let's uh, dig into the idea of how to take this book and uh, work it into your fall of Delta Green campaign, which I guess brings us to the uh, perennial question of the book talks about Lovecraft. Does the version of the book that appears in your fall of Delta Green continuity refer to Lovecraft? Is he a real person in your world? And uh, if so, what does that mean? I don't believe that there's a canon answer to that in the Delta Green continuity. The answer in my campaign is to replace Lovecraft's influence with that of Randolph Carter, Lovecraft's uh, alter ego, uh, who wrote horror stories and then mysteriously vanishes in 1928. And so that makes him sort of an interesting uh, fellow, I think, if you're a, a pursuer of anomalies in the Delta Green universe that you're wondering what's going on with this guy, Randolph Carter. And you can do everything with Randolph Carter that you can do with H.P. Lovecraft fictively. Plus you're not uh, necessarily pinned down to chapter and verse of the Dunwich horror or whatever. You can say that uh, Randolph Carter's version of that story, you know, applies, you know, slightly differently to the universe. And that when you, the Delta green agents go to investigate Innsmouth or Dunwich, you discover the true Lovecraftian truth that Randolph Carter could only hint at. Uh, right. And so that gets that annoying thing out of the way of, Oh, well, we'll just go and get weird tales and increase our Cthulhu mythos ratings like crazy, because weirdly this has all been published and people right. think it's fictional. So that's a, an annoying thing gotten out of the way. So once you've done that, uh, what is happening in 1960 around the publication of this book? that might involve U.S. intelligence operatives. Well, I mean, to begin with, the book itself covers a lot of the areas that the Delta Green teams would look at, such as the Nazi occult um, and UFOs. Both are big pieces of this uh, text. And so, you, you know, you, you might be investigating a UFO case and discover that it very much parallels something from Morning the Magicians. And you wonder, how did uh, Powell's and Bergier know about this? Or you might discover that they have pieces of the truth of the Karatekia in their book. And you are wondering what their sources were. And of course, with uh, Bergier uh, spending time in a concentration camp, there's any number of places he might've uh, picked up a little knowledge, what uh, spooky stuff the Nazis were up to. Um, and then Powell's being a journalist again, could have uh, stumbled on the same sorts of things. You also have the sort of standard option of you as the handler taking any piece of the book and deciding that it becomes 
a central element of some story or conspiracy that you're doing. And then Powell's and Bergier are still around. They're, uh, they're running a magazine called Planet, uh, which is a sort of, um, paranormal, uh, a fancier version of fate magazine, essentially, and, uh, investigating things. And in our history, Bergier was also, uh, translating Lovecraft into French and making sure that those works got out there in French sort of elite schools in a Delta Green France where he's translating the works of Randolph Carter. And you also have the uh, Carcosan energies that are going to bubble up in May of 1968 and that month of madness and chaos. You could imply that perhaps there's a connection that Powell's or Bergier or both are churning up Carcosa either intentionally or unintentionally, depending on how you want to paint them. I, I think that making them be uh, naifs with half a clue or idiots who think that they know more than they do is more fun than making them uh, secret disciples of something. I, I think that it's uh, it's truer to the tone of the book, which is, as I say, sort of upbeat and positive and joyful. And it doesn't invalidate Bergier's work with the resistance. So that's my preference, but obviously you can, you can do what you want. Bergier, as I mentioned, was in the resistance, which gave him contacts with, uh, the French military. Uh, he was, uh, part of the de Gaullist movement, not the communist resistance. And afterwards, uh, consulted, uh, with French intelligence, as they put it, and wrote a couple of books on, uh, spying and secret societies. So he is a conduit for this new age investigation or mythos investigation to the SDECE or whatever French intelligence service you're looking at as trying to weaponize the mythos for de Gaulle. Right. Because in a world where the, the mythos is real and Berger has ongoing intelligence connections, that raises the question of what is the uh, geopolitical magical implication of creating a book that says consensus reality shifting is a thing and we don't want to just leave it in the hands of the bad people. We have to make it open to the good people. So it could be that Morning of the Magicians, uh, oh, look at that title. They're looking for a beginning of magic. And perhaps it is a recruiting tool that the French intelligence is using to attract people, young uh, intellectuals who otherwise you know, might be making uh, films or art or uh, just hanging out uh, in a cafe uh, talking about existentialism. Well, maybe you want to direct... Uh, some of those people uh, into your uh, version of uh, the anti-mythos force or the mythos controlling force. And so you're looking, uh, you know, who is this going to spark? How do we create a light side version of uh, this consensus reality alteration, which a later generation called hacking? They're not going to call it that. Um, they might call it reality editing or or what have you. And so it could be their way of trying to find people who are uh, want to turn all these powers uh, to the side of light. And of course, in a Lovecraftian universe, that's not what happens. No, it, it is never what happens. And the, uh, the other thing that you can use Morning the Magicians for, of course, is to read it yourself. And then you will know what a, a conspiracy that people believe might exist in the 60s can look like, uh, because of course it's all about secret societies and machinations behind the, the scenes of things. So, even if you know that the real conspiracy is the Yithian motion or the Migo or something else, this can be what people who are investigating it think it is. And that may be a, a road to meta for you, but Morning of the Missions is not a, uh, it's not a tough book to read. It's, um, it, it sort of glumps along, 
Uh, so it's no real hardship to read it. And, and so just as a, as a document to get you into the position of knowing what sixties occultism feels like, especially in the early half of it, uh, before, um, the big explosions in, in 66, seven, eight takeover. Right. And one of the things that happens in the sixties, uh, that uh, relates to Paris, of course, is that the, uh, surrealists receive a resurgence of interest and reputation and, uh, the ones who are still alive, uh, get a, a fame and uh, recognition that they uh, and money that they didn't have uh, back in the twenties and thirties, and of course that is the twenties and thirties heyday is the setting for Dream Hands of Paris for Trailer Cthulhu, uh, and so you could easily pick up that book, look at it, look at uh, Morning of the Magician, see if there's any references in there to uh, surrealism, and build out uh, from there a uh, either a crossover from. Uh, your past Dreamhounds uh, series to your fall of Delta Green, or uh, you can just use that to inform uh, what's going on in your uh, Gallic excursion of your your Americans in Paris uh, with their guns. Towards the tail end of the book, Powell's and Bergier do indeed name check Andre Breton, uh, the father of surrealism, pilgrim on the road to strangeness, sensitive to every transient current of disquieting ideas. So... Uh, that's good fun, right? Yes. Among their sort of uh, theses is that the the universe is a f- fantastic real, not a quotidian real, and surrealism is one gateway into understanding how that might be. Although, again, they you know shy away from saying Dolly is specifically right about clocks melting or whatever. They they have a uh, it's a philosophical approach, not a you know, chapter and verse sort of approach with the given surrealists. Well, it's philosophical until you go to sleep reading Morning of the Magicians and wake up in the dreamlands with a field of melting clocks. And uh, speaking of uh, things shifting in the 60s, I think there's another segment on the other side of this delightful commercial message. The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrain store. The whir of the projector, the beams stabbing through the darkness, lighting up the cigarette smoke, the squelchy stickiness under our feet as we move to our seats in the center aisle, welcome us into the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, we are continuing to screen our film festival of horror. And by film festival, we mean series of rapid summaries of the horror essentials. This is not every great horror film. Uh, every now and again, one of us will sneak in a great horror film that is 
not necessarily essential, but it's sort of the, the curriculum you need to understand horror film, where it's been, where it's going, where it is now. Uh, and we left off with the, the blob, uh, at the end of, uh, not the end, the climax of the boom of science horror. But the other strain that begins in the fifties is the return to the Gothic. And, uh, in many ways, uh, it's not just the Western Gothic that it returns to because as national film cultures emerge blinking from World War II, they themselves also, uh, begin to explore horror, uh, not just with, uh, Gojira, but also with Ugetsu, 1953, Kenji Mizuguchi. Uh, yeah. So we're jumping back a little bit to, to pick up this, uh, thread of the supernatural and we'll cover a few of these titles and then we'll get into the whole question, which I alluded to. Uh, in the previous segment of what is going on in the zeitgeist that suddenly turns uh, 1960 into this uh, turning point, uh, not only of culture more broadly, but of a uh, the return of the irrational, which we were just talking about. The, the morning of the magicians is also that same ferment is beginning to rise in the horror movie. But uh, just to go back and, and hit something that fits better with these uh then uh, in the, with science horror, although it's earlier, this 1953, as you said, uh, Kenzie Mishiguchi is uh, one of the uh, all-time pillars of the classic era of Japanese cinema, and he often is known for his social realism. And there's even a sense of social realism, particularly as it relates to the travails of women, in this film, which adapts two of the nine stories from Yujutsu Monogatari, which is a, a work of short horror stories by the 18th century writer Ueda Akina. So he's a little too early to call him the uh, the Poe of Japan. And there's somebody else who would argue that he's the Poe of Japan. But uh, So this is a literary adaptation. So in uh, that sense, it's like the films of the 30s in the Hollywood studio system. And it is part ghost story and part more sort of a realistic uh, samurai tale from the Civil War period in Japan. And the uh, part that interests us here is an adaptation of Ueda Ikina's Lust of the White Serpent. Uh, and uh, there's a, a B plot as well that uh, is less supernatural. So basically, this is the story of a, a married potter. Uh, he visits a noblewoman and her servant who seem interested in pottery, tries to sell them things and sort of he kind of falls for her. Uh, the uh, Lady Wasaka, the, the noble woman, is played by the titan of Japanese uh, actors, uh, Michiko Kyo. And uh, it turns out, uh, not to spoil anything, that, uh, well, they just might be ghosts in disguise. No, not ghosts. And demons and serpents and all sorts of things, right? Yeah. You, you can be a whole bunch of different things. If, uh, if you're uh, interested in pottery, you want to lure a poor potter your way mm -hmm. it's not a good not a good look to be a any kind of person really in supernatural japan there's not the sense of sort of fairness uh, that a lot of uh, western ghost stories imply although uh speaking of unfairness one of the great not just a great horror movie but one of the great movies comes out in 55 and it is either a late noir or the first of the great serial killer movies and either way it is sort of of a piece with the sort of expressionist terrors of uh the the german 20s all of that with a first-time director a guy known better as an actor charles lawton who directed night of the hunter in 1955 in which uh robert mitchum plays the reverend harry powell 
a bad, bad man. Basically, although there is no overt supernaturality of it, he is almost a demonic force uh, within the film. And he sort of just encompasses within his shadow the, 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 the children in this little town that he is pursuing in order to get uh, $10,000 until he runs up against Lillian Gish in an amazing uh, late career turn for her as a pure and good widow who uh, looks after uh, innocent children. And it's uh, it's it's a story of good and evil. It's it's as strong, if not stronger than Dracula Van Helsing in that way. And of course, uh, Lawton, wherever that came from, was channeling Fritz Lang better than Fritz Lang did in most of his films. This is a masterpiece. Uh, as you suggest, it sort of straddles genres. It's, it's sui generis. I would not put it in a list of horror essentials. I just put it in a list of cinema essentials. So the, the takeaway from both of us is see this movie. Uh, <laughs> if you tell someone you're trying to turn on to this movie that is a horror movie, they might not get into it or they might feel that their expectations are betrayed. It's almost sort of, um, I would put it, it's, it's horror adjacent, definitely has gothic overtones. It's also has a fairy tale quality, which I think might not be consistent with horror. And if I was going to put this in a, uh, a 101 list, I would put it in a, a survey of rural noir along with uh, things like No Country for Old Men. and, and Or Cape Fear. Yeah. yeah. But anytime you can mention Night of the Hunter, you should mention Night of the Hunter. So we just mm-hmm. did. Uh, speaking of Night Ofs, uh, the next brings us to a, another recapitulation, which is we're revisiting Jacques Tenor, who was the uh, director behind many of the strongest Val Luton movies. And uh, we have The Night of the Demon from 1957. It's a British production based on an M.R. James story. And it's about, uh, once again, you're falling uh, into the the grips of an occult conspiracy, uh, like the Luton movies, a question of, uh, is there anything supernatural going on except for this rubber monster that there's an obligatory shot of, <laughs> is a question. And it has a, a lead performance uh, by uh, Dana Andrews, uh, which is uh, no less powerful for the clear and evident fact that Andrews is utterly smashed in every take of this film. <laughs> well, fortunately, his opposite number is always in complete control, Neil McGinnis as Dr. Julian Carswell. And this is one of the best uh, cinema bad guys, cinema dark magicians that has ever been put on screen. The picnic sequence, which I will not uh, further spoil, is a masterpiece, and it manages to be even scarier than the M.R. James bit of the story, which uh, uh, is a Magic Lantern show. Ironically, they take it away from a Magic Lantern show and make it a a children's picnic. And it is just a, 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 it's a pinnacle moment of horror. This is horror. As you say, there is a bit of, is there, isn't there? Turner, of course, did not want there to ever be a demon. The producer, Hal Chester, said it's going to say demon on the screen, on the screen. It's going to say demon on the posters. Put me a demon in there, Jacques Turner. Demon in the trailer. <laughs> Fancy lad. Uh, so, uh, there is indeed, uh, as you say, a not particularly effective demon at the end. Turner tries his darndest to put fog and, and, and not light it very well. He does everything he can, but it's a demon in a B picture from 1958. So that's not the, or 57. That is not necessarily where the, the, the greatness is. The greatness is, as you say, in Dana Andrews sort of channeling simultaneous skepticism and terror. And then, uh, in my, in my mind, Neil McGinnis is an unsung horror villain. He deserves to be at least as beloved as, you know, Peter Laurie or, or Boris Karloff. He's amazing in this. So next can we come to the film that is 
essentially responsible for the the horror boom of the early 60s or one of the the main drivers we're going to possibly get all the way to another one near the end of the segment uh and that is hammer's horror of dracula from 1958 terence fisher and this has some some pretty sung uh, horror actors in it doesn't it oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's it's christopher lee as dracula it's peter cushing as van helsing it's an amazing piece of work all the way around. Terrence Fisher, again, directs the story as good versus evil, but also as science versus bestiality. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, very interesting thematic play that goes deeper than just man and vampire. It is based on, but departs from uh, the, the stage play, and everywhere it departs from the stage play becomes genius. Uh, it is also begins Hammer's bizarre love-hate relationship with the British aristocracy. The Hammer was, of course, a film of guys who did not get into good schools. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sort not sure of bizarre striving. as well, rather than uh, perfectly explicable. <laughs> might be the right adjective there. Yes, right. But again, most British film either picks one side or the other. Either it's, you know, simply, you know, bipping along, having a good time, or it's a movie of angry social realism that's like this this system is awful hammer wants to have it both ways and really thoroughly believes that the that the aristocracy is both rotten and terrible and good and uh, benevolent and both things are always at play in the films and the the weird social undercurrents of hammer film begin with this film which is uh, a masterpiece on on every level, as far as I'm concerned, and easily the best, uh, the best Dracula movie, though perhaps not the best movie of Dracula, if you follow me. Right. And so this sets off an entire cottage industry of horror from Hammer, which, uh, existed before this and also has a, a crime film strain that is, uh, interesting and, and, uh, sometimes crosses over. There's some, some crime films with like Peter Cushing in them and stuff. And so this is going to stand in on our list for the other, Hammer films. And if you love this one, you can then go on to do a deep dive into all of them. They are very formulaic often. Uh, they use, reuse the mm -hmm. same sets. They use the same uh, script structures. And some of them are uh, stronger than others. And uh, some of them have kind of longers in them, little bits where the, uh, the pacing slackens. And I guess uh, since this is the uh, uh, late 50s and early 60s, I think the point of those is if you're at a drive-in, with uh, someone you wish to canoodle with that gives you ample canoodling time. This is your canoodling opportunity. Um, later Hammer films definitely play into the canoodling side of horror, uh, becoming uh, somewhat legendary uh, for those. But this is sort of the, the place that all of that begins to walk through the door. Um, it's not about uh, blood down the neckline. Uh, this is just about the sort of thematic qualities of it. But again, Plenty of blood down the neckline, if that's what you're looking for later on in the Hammer oeuvre. Right. And it's a big hit and yes. is relatively inexpensive. And so other... It's very inexpensive. Yes. So other sort of mini studios go, hey, wait a minute. And so that brings us to the next couple of uh, choices. Uh, and so we're going to uh, do another film that stands in for a whole series of other films. And that is Roger Corman's House of Usher from 1960. Uh, this is the first of his... Uh, Poe adaptations. Uh, Corman, I think, is, uh, if you want to argue that Corman is underrated as a director, you point to these films, which are even more obviously inexpensive than the Hammer films, uh, very much use, reuse the same sets and structures, uh, but still nonetheless 
conjure more atmosphere than you could uh, possibly expect an American director to coax out of these old American stories about weird things in a, a non-specific uh, Europe. So I'm not even sure House of Usher is the best of them, but it's the first of them. So we're and we're doing a historical cycle. But if you want to swap in any other of them, that is, uh, will work equally well. They even sort of run together in my mind. They might mine too, right? I mean, I saw all of them, you know, in afternoon horror chiller theater programs in Oklahoma City, and loved them, of course. But unlike the Hammer films, which I came back to as a sentient being, I haven't really parsed out, you know, which one is, which ones are the good ones, except, of course, for the H.P. Lovecraft one, The Haunted Palace, uh, which is based on Charles Dexter Ward and has a special place in my heart for that reason. But if you ask me, is scene X in Pit and the Pendulum or is scene Y in The Raven or Mask of the Red Death? I, I would not necessarily be able to tell you because they all sort of blur together even more in a, in a way than the Hammer films do, I think. And and they're all just one weird, beautiful dream. They make strong use of color. And they almost invariably, I think, uh, are, are there ones without Vincent Price in them? We can't tell. But yes, who, <laughs> who can, can say? say? <laughs> science science does, uh, doesn't know. Speaking of looking things up, I have a, I have a correction at the end of, of this segment. So let's, uh, let's not forget that. Um, Vincent Price became a horror actor in 53 with House of Wax. Uh, we mentioned The Fly last week. But by this time in 1960, the trailer is billing him as the screen's foremost delineator of the Draculean, uh, which is a good trick since there's no Draculas in House of Usher. Or I think in his oeuvre. Yes. And uh, that brings us to uh, not only in the U.S. are people looking at Hammer and going, hey, wait a minute, uh, but can I believe it's time to bring Italy, a country that will uh, start punching above its weight very soon, uh, into the picture with uh, Black Sunday from 1960. Uh, by Mario Bava. This is in black and white. Others of his work are focused on his uh, amazing color palette. Uh, this one is very gothic. It's based on uh, Gogol's V, uh, and it is a story uh, with uh, Barbara Steele, another uh, iconic horror actor. And this one is about a witch who returns from the dead to wreak vengeance on her descendants because uh, her brothers killed her, which is in fairness, sometimes a thing that you do when your sister's a witch. Yeah. Black Sunday is, first of all, it's a terrific movie. Loads of atmosphere for days. Barbara Steele, another terrific uh, movie villain slash monster. And she gets to play a uh, sort of a double character. She's the the modern day incarnation of the witch and also the witch. And then there's a degree of uh, Conte de Cruel that even Hammer uh, shies away from that uh, Mario Bava does not shy away from and that is going to lead us to uh, the explicit films of cruelty of the Giallo period that are that's coming up uh, in just a few years. Uh, this is not quite the Giallo era, and it's certainly not the Giallo sensibility, but you can sort of see bits of it coming out in, in this movie. And then also, as you say, it, it's a great uh, introduction to Mario Bava's work in terms of, you know, framing shots and uh, sequencing the story and things like that so that you don't get distracted by the color palette. I mean, his black and white looks amazing too. He's just a fundamentally uh, astonishingly good director, but the uh, it, it's sort of an, a, a good way to get a handle on Bava before you get completely drowned by something like kill baby kill uh, or, or something else. Right? Yes, exactly. And uh, the Gothic is, is continuing to spread uh, throughout Europe and uh, uncharacteristically 
uh, bit. It's not necessarily a place as, as known for its commercial cinema or its horror cinema, but uh, Georges Franju in France, also in 1960, uh, brings us Eyes Without a Face, which, like the Black Cat, combines uh, science horror and the gothic. And in this one, a plastic surgeon causes an accident that uh, disfigures his daughter, uh, so he uh, kidnaps another girl as the unwilling donor of a face transplant. And uh, his, uh, uh, he has a house of science that is also a house of frights. There are uh, scary dogs and, again, this sort of weird dreamlike atmosphere that uh, suggests that uh, from uh, basically the gothic elements are coming back from the past to attack consensus reality and overwhelm the hubris of, of science. So uh, next week, uh, we're going to start uh, with another film from 1960 that has as big a footprint in the world of horror, if not bigger uh, than the Hammer films, is a gothic and is something else. If you don't need a horror 101, you already know what that is. Um, and just before we leave this segment, I have to issue a correction. In our uh, 40s segment, I mixed up my uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde movies. And in fact, it is the Frederick March version that has the heavy prosthetics. The Spencer Tracy version has light prosthetics. So I have to thank uh, Finn Cullen for uh, pointing out my error on that. I, I even looked it up and still got it wrong, Ken. So you know what that <laughs> means? Never look anything up. Yes. No, that looking up is, is just admitting that you, were, uh, that you weren't ready to do the segment. And you can't do that. You'd, you'd be paralyzed. Right. Paralyzed and operated on by a French surgeon. No. Anyhow, that was uh, only a bit of uh horror we got almost halfway through 1960 we'll uh, be back next week with more gothic more horror and uh maybe even a little blood in the neckline for you hammer fans The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from premature burial by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Jeffrey Pittman, Linda and Mike Schiffer, Peter Nix, Philip Masters, and Phil Groff. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Josh Borlace asks Ken and Robin, 
Who is your favorite great old one, and what real-world eleptonic society are they planning to appropriate? I think we've answered favorite great old one questions before, but it's always good to come back. Robin, do you have a, a favorite, or do you love them all equally? Yeah, I think we've covered this sort of at the live show level, so I guess mm -hmm. we can dig in and do a bit more depth. Now, do we want to each do like a runner-up before we do our main one, or do we just want to go Ooh, for our... Yeah, we, we could do a, the top four great old ones. Okay, so yeah. so my second favorite uh, one, the one that I think has the greatest explanatory power for what is actually going on in our universe, would be Azazoth. The, the crawling chaos at the center right. of the universe. He's, the blind idiot sultan. Yes, it is the complete inversion of the idea of a deity, the, the deity that is has no understanding of what's going on, that is merely malign, that is uh, a destructive force. And, uh, of course, the image of being orbited by the blind flautists keening their, their horrible music, I think, is a, a very strong one. And I think just as an image, that is uh, super cool. But the whole idea of uh, Azeroth, of course, is that he is utter indifference. And this is the difficult thing to portray about Lovecraftian deities, because mostly you're interacting uh, with their cultists who still have human motivations and are misguidedly uh, dealing with them. But the idea that in particular that Azazoth wants anything or would bother to infiltrate anything or be part of any electronic society, that he is essentially the reality alteration, the uh, the thing that we've been talking about again and again, the bubbling up of the irrational uh, incarnate, and he doesn't he doesn't even need to do anything. He just is, and uh, you know, he's basically entropy. So, a great image, but also kind of hard to portray and put into a, a story. I mean, he, he becomes sort of a magnet that all these things are pointing at, but they don't know why they're doing it, or he doesn't care that they're doing it, because like you say, he's a he's a force. He's not a, he's not an actor. He just is. I mean, you can go all kind of different ways. A lot of times to this question, I would say Quachil Utaus, the treader of the dust, but he's only in one story. And although I love him, he doesn't really have the, the, the strong possibilities that uh, some of the other uh, great old ones have because he's, he's a just, deep, he's a deep cut. Yeah. He's a deep cut. He's a, he's a creepy mummified baby that makes time uh, speed up. So obviously he's, you know, involved somehow in the music industry. But <laughs> other than that, I can't really in good conscience say he's like my second favorite. Uh, one of them. I think my, my second favorite of the great old ones is probably Sathagwa. I love Sathagwa. I've always loved Sathagwa and I love the sort of duality of him because he is both a Lovecraftian black bubbling viscid figure that is sort of presented in, in stories like the mound or in, or in other stories as the underlying terror. When you strip away the comforting human mask of Cthulhu, uh, there's Sathagwa just sort of burbling away and, and to Lovecraft clearly Sathagwa represents the Ur sort of slime at the, at the center of, Lovecraft's bloodstream or the center of human existence or the center of whatever, that there's this sort of black, sticky, viscid goo that he later on sort of reifies as the Shoggoths. And then there's Clark Ashton Smith's Sathago, who's a big, lazy, fat toad bat, and he sleeps in his cavern and he wakes up and sometimes he teaches you magic and sometimes he eats you and you can never tell what he does. And the notion of these two entirely dissonant entities both being Sathagwa, 
I think gives Sathagawa a degree of dimensionality that, um, like you say, Azathoth, a amazing image, super powerful, super evocative and, and terrific, but it's hard to do something with it because it's really just one thing. It's just that central nuclear chaos. Whereas Sathagwa can be presented as either this sort of, you know, in the, in the words of Forbidden Planet, speaking of, I guess, 1960, a monster from the id, or he can be presented as a sort of chortling post-human superego, depending on how you want to define him. And the notion of both of them being the same monster that Sathagwa, unlike most of these uh, guys, has the same dimensionality of, of of a human makes him more interesting, I think, to look at. And in terms of what uh, he's doing in our world, I feel like uh, he could be he could be any number of things. But I like the notion that if he was uh, working in our world, it would be some group that on the surface, you understand that it's dangerous, but it seems OK. But then once you get into it, it's it's nothing but dark, elemental, crude madness. And so that, that could be, you know, almost anything that from your, um, oh, aren't we daring church of Satan types to no, we're mostly, uh, political, uh, operators and, uh, the neo paganism is just a way that we act in the world, but deep underneath it's what we really are. We're just about this sort of, you know, Nietzschean super morality and we don't want any, you know, uh, uh restraints. Uh, I, I, I like that, that duality and that that plays with a lot of secret societies and elliptonic groups. Yeah, the, the flavor he has that, that other old ones don't is the idea of hunger and consumption. And so mm -hmm. uh, when I want to uh, play with him, I want to uh, think of something hungry and consuming. And whether that is a factory under Stalin that uh, eats all the workers who go into it or is a group of uh, Wall Street wizards uh, height of uh, the 80s or even now uh, breaking down companies and destroying them and devouring people's jobs and economic activity. Uh, I think that's a, a really strong thing to play with so that you can, uh, unlike Azizoth, give something that even he or uh, at least his cultists are, are up to. And that's what brings me to my favorite old one, uh, which is Neuralathotep. And the reason that I like him is that he breaks the mold in that he mm -hmm. isn't indifferent to humanity. Uh, he uh, is interested enough in us to come and down and do uh, uh, demos and uh, have a light show and attract a following. And he's humanoid and you can talk to him. And thus, in a game, Neuralathotep can show up and talk to you and be and he can be sort of charming and not necessarily overtly sinister. So, you know, I've had a number of scenes over my gaming career where people talk to Nyarlathotep, uh, but none where they talk to Azazoth or to Zasagua. So, you know, he's sort of the, an, an antichrist figure. He is, embodies the destruction of the old ones in a way that he is able to come to Earth and interact with uh, mankind. And uh, therefore, the question of what Eleptonic uh, thing is he interacting with now? He could be doing any of them because he's he's a go getter. And but I think what Neuralathotep undoubtedly is doing right now is he's focusing on the whole wellness movement and uh, the idea of bodily purity being a, a gateway to uh, totalitarianism. Is uh, he knows that playbook, and uh, so he's taking all the uh, the yoga moms. And uh, people who are concerned with their organic diets and uh, making sure their children never go near a sugar molecule. And uh, he sees that uh, controlling impulse and uh, he's going to take it and uh, warp all of those people and uh, drag them into the dark side uh, for things that will undoubtedly continue to be ripped from the headlines in the months and years ahead. And I guess if you're asking, you know, 
about favorite great old ones. I, I think it's very hard to get away from the big guy. Uh, I think Cthulhu, in a lot of ways, it's the basic answer. It's the sort of liking the Beatles favorite, isn't wrong, Ken. Right? You know, your your favorite ho- your season is spring. Your favorite ice cream is vanilla. Your favorite great old one is Cthulhu. I I get that, but those are all the correct answers. Um, I like Cthulhu because again, he has been so uh, carefully drawn to be multivariate in in Lovecraft's uh, even in Lovecraft's uh, handlings. He's polysemic in a way that the other beings are not necessarily. Partly because uh, Lovecraft wanted to build a fugue when he wrote Call of Cthulhu. And so he created a, a Cthulhu that structurally has layers of perception. And you peel one back and you see something else, partly because he then went back to Cthulhu for a lot of other purposes later on. Uh, Cthulhu has been a, a nothing but an alien. He's been a god. He's been the embodiment of apocalypse. He's been a basically a kaiju. He's up and down the the power rankings. And in um, uh, the mound, uh, Cthulhu is the friendly god who brought you down uh, and made man live on the surface of the earth and kept everyone happy. And uh, it is only when you go deep behind the worship of, of Tulu that you discover Sathagwa uh, lurks. And so the notion of uh, Cthulhu as having all of these qualities, this mosaic quality, I think that that's one of the things that makes Call of Cthulhu a modernist work, although Lovecraft would shriek and windmill his arms if anyone heard him or heard you say that. But it, it is true that, that it has this sort of um, a broken fractal quality. And therefore, Cthulhu is great in stories. You can make him not just the good old uh, seaside cult, which is always good fun, but he can show up. Uh, in a lot of different contexts. And in our context, I think that the notion of Cthulhu is the notion of the true doom that we all know is coming, but we don't want to talk about. And so the cult of Cthulhu could either be uh, like the Club of Rome that used to exist in the 70s, and they would issue predictions about uh, overpopulation and uh, other bad 70s things. The Club of Rome was sort of, you know, they probably got in on the big global cooling boom before that uh, vanished, but uh, something where we are going to paper over the apocalypse is is sort of a Cthuloid existence, and I think that you can also then pull him deeper into the sort of um, you know Jonestown or Heaven's Gate cults, where when they reach the apotheosis, uh, they commit suicide because that's actually the apotheosis is the end of things; it's oblivion. There's no stage two stage two is destruction and chaos and so the notion of of something that seems like it has an end game and then turns out that the end game is uh implosion is is a very cthulhu-y uh sort of space so you can either uh again have it be the the comforting scrim no no we know that apocalypse is coming but we have a nine point plan for it or it can be the there's a better world coming oh no it's not either of those uh is is true to cthulhu and i think uh plays well in uh in in today's world as again uh lovecraft meant it to cthulhu is very much the the monster of modernity lovecraft hated hated it like he hated everything and uh cthulhu just happens to be a terrific symbol for it yep uh when uh, the final season of sabrina decided to have an old one show up uh, it wasn't dagon they picked nope uh well on that note i think i think i hear a familiar sound of a of a well-known vehicle so uh let's let's head toward it ken let's do it
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that uh, his sponsors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to Benfold, Spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And uh, this time around, Ken, I understand you were taking the machine for a spin. Uh, you wanted to head over to Rome in uh, 1764 to hang out with Edward Gibbon. But if I'm looking at the notes correctly, it looks like there was a bit of a miscalibration of the chronotons. In fact, you wound up in Frankfurt on March 27th of 1764 for the final vote of the prince electors to select Prince Joseph of Austria as successor to the ailing Emperor Francis I of the Holy Roman Empire. And since you were there, and I know you do like to, you know, deduct your expenses, I understand that you stroked your chin a bit and tried to determine what the most beneficial alteration to history you could make, uh, given that you were there. Well, the problem with trying to alter the imperial election of 1764 is twofold. Uh, first, that by 1764, the imperial throne of the Holy Roman Empire basically amounted to nothing. It was purely a ceremonial title. So perhaps we need to, to back up and uh, tell people a bit about right. what it was before it was a ceremonial title. Why did this used to be a big deal? This used to be a big deal because what it meant was that you had, in theory, the right to boss around Germany, that the Holy Roman Emperor was officially the vicar of the church who was put in charge of the heir to uh, the Roman Empire, and that you were the uh, king of Rome and the lord of broad domain that generally meant uh, Germany and maybe bits of northern Italy. Right. And by Germany and Italy, we're talking about groups of city-states in a territory, not the integrated nations that would arrive a century later. Indeed. And because of the na of that tension, uh, the Holy Roman Emperors rapidly got tied in with, rather than being the strong arm of the Pope, the guy who kept punching the Pope. And because what well, the thing that the Pope did not want was a actually strong secular authority that could tell the Pope to go whistle. The Pope wanted someone to keep all of these other guys in line and paying their tithes to Rome. So yeah, of the people who are opposed to Pope punching, Pope is always number one on that list. Pope's among the number one, not always. The anti-popes are often very pope punching. Well, yes, they, they want. If there's two popes, each pope wants you to punch the other one. But we're 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 digressing. We're we're moving far away. And so when the uh, the emperor has a powerful base for his own authority, some ancestral lands, he can often be a powerful force for uh, pulling Germany together. You got that with the Hohenstaufens 
under uh, Frederick, uh, first, second, and third. And then, as things do, the system fell apart. And the thing that broke the system probably permanently, uh, well, definitely permanently, because it went away, uh, was the Reformation in 1517, when you had suddenly a bunch of German states that weren't even Catholic, Robin. Speaking they, of Pope punching. Speaking of Pope punching, but they were still electors of the Holy Roman Empire. And that, of course, caused great browbeating and surus amongst popes and the imperial provinces of the empire. They fought a big wing and war over it, the Thirty Years' War, ending in 1648, which basically announced to the world that Germany, uh, the Holy Roman Empire as a entity, was not going to be making any waves. It was it was going to be a uh, a thing that you gave to a powerful Catholic prelate, or not prelate, a powerful Catholic prince, but it was not going to actually have any more secular authority, that it was uh, purely a ceremonial is is maybe a little too strong a word, but not quite that it exists as a mantle of protection for Catholic cities in Germany, especially those that are all pushed way up into Protestant territory. Right. So th this brings us to the, the, your first point that right. creating a, a good time stream here is hampered by the fact that this is not the most momentous election of a Holy Roman em Emperor ever. Yes. People have compared the Holy Roman Empire not to a country, but to a, a group of countries and not even an alliance like NATO, but like the UN, where if you're in Germany, you have to be in it, but you don't have to like that all your neighbors are in it. And so there is a degree of, uh, of, of turmoil back and forth. Sometimes the election becomes a political football. Other times it does not. And in 16, 1764, it had been basically a fixed system because the uh, Seven Years' War had just ended in 1763, Prussia escaping by the skin of its teeth. The only concession, however, that Frederick the Great needed to make at the end of the war was to promise his vote to the candidate selected by Maria Theresa, the Queen of uh, the Empress of Austria. And she got a vote because she was Queen of Bohemia. They fought a whole different war over uh, whether or not she would even get her vote uh, in uh, the War of the Austrian Succession. And she did, in fact, get her vote. And so at the end of the Seven Years' War, which was the same war, only bigger and louder, Frederick the Great basically promised to vote with Maria Theresa. And with the two big guns in Germany promised to vote on the same side, that sort of makes it a done deal. There's no logical way that somebody else comes. There's, there's no dark horse, right? There are three bishoprics that get votes. Those are all very strongly in favor of voting only for Catholic uh, states as heads of the of the empire for obvious reasons. Um, the two big Protestant electorates are Brunswick-Luneburg, which is to say Hanover, and that's George III, King George III of England, and the elector of Brandenburg, and that's Frederick the Great. And they're both promised, uh, George III, by a previous convention, promised to always vote uh, with Bohemia, that was the thing that settled the 1745 situation. And so the two most powerful non-Austrian electors uh, have promised to support uh, the Austrian candidate, Maria Theresa's candidate, Prince Joseph of Austria, to succeed to Emperor Francis I, who is not doing well. That's why they hold the election. The election technically is to invest the new candidate as King of the Romans so that he can ascend to the imperial throne without uh, fuss and bother whenever Francis I finally does die. Francis I, being not an idiot, made sure to get all this set up. He uh, worked very hard to get 
all the prelates and princes of, of the empire uh, in a row to agree to Joseph being the candidate. And so, like I say, the three um, uh, Catholic bishops are, are in the bag. Uh, Brandenburg and Hanover are both promised. The only real rivals left are Saxony, which is a, another Protestant state, but Saxony has just had the Seven Years' War fought back and forth over it, and the Palatinate, which can possibly bring in Bavaria. There's a family connection there, but Bavaria, again, hates, 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 hates Protestants. So it's it's a done deal. It's a done deal. quasi-ceremonial post, mm-hmm. but you still want to be able to write off your expenses for your nice ermine hat that you picked up. Exactly. So... How does the time stream change, Ken? Okay. The first thing I thought of was actually trying a dark horse situation and getting Charles Theodore made Holy Roman Emperor. Because in theory, you could have gotten the three Catholic bishops to go for Charles Theodore because he's a weaker boss instead of a stronger boss. So that's four Lighter votes. punching. Light, lighter punching. Then that could maybe pull Bavaria in. And so now we have five votes and that's a, that's a bare majority. And Charles Theodore is a terrific guy. He's a patron of the arts, as is Joseph of Austria. He's got a, a a relatively good sense of humor about things. Again, as Joseph of Austria, Joseph of Austria at the uh, investiture dinner is meant to be served by the princes who have voted to make him emperor, but they're not going to be serving an Austrian prince anything. So uh, the dishes that he was supposed to eat just sit on the table and no one eats them. And so he's he's in, in these giant robes watching half of his dinner go away. So <laughs> nobody likes that. It, it, it becomes a very famous spectacle about the hollowness and stupidity of the uh, Holy Roman Emperor. Goethe is there and writes it down. Uh, Diderot summarizes the whole election uh, protesting. We assemble in the assembly. We quarrel by quarreling. We deliberate in confusion. We decide we we, we discard the decisions to pursue the welfare of the fatherland. And so in his uh, encyclopedic way, he's saying this was a waste of time. Again, the UN is the, is, is the model to use here. So Joseph becomes uh, an enlightened despot uh, as did a lot of people at that time. And you would think that someone who has had the complete unreality of monarchical power hammered into him by this farcical ceremony would have gone on to rule Austria with a, a, a slightly more delicate touch, but not our Joseph. He, he was he, mad about the dinner. <laughs> he was maybe he was mad about the dinner or maybe he was like, this may fly in Frankfurt, but it's not going to fly in fricking Austria that I run. And so he basically uh, attempted to unify and Austrianize the empire under one legal system and under one set of criteria. And this, of course, angered the Bohemians and the Hungarians who he needed uh, to be the other two wings of his uh, monarchy. And so it, it, it triggered a great deal of, of upset in Austria and begins the ferment that becomes uh, the 1848 revolutions. Uh, essentially, there are a number of, um, rebellions in, as I say, in, in Hungary amongst the peasants that the local princes of Hungary are saying, oh, we'd love to put it down, but sadly, you're in charge now. You have to do it. So the, uh, there's a lot of uh, problems with what's called Josephinism. There is a brief period in the 1930s, of course, where uh, people say, well, look at how rational and sensible this was. Uh, you have an enlightened despot and he rules everything by smart edicts and he, he gets the best people together and he has a plan. And uh, he destroys that, consensus reality. <laughs> yes. And, and people um, uh, uh, later went and they did the research and they said, well, that's about half true. And in fact, 
lies on forged copies of his correspondence that someone uh, invented to make him seem uh, smarter and nicer than he actually was. So again, of the candidates, the elector of the Palatinate is probably a better dude than Joseph, although he still was all about suppressing uh, wrong think when he could. He broke up the Illuminati when he was put in charge of Bavaria later on, for example. I think that the only thing that you can do is because at the time when Joseph is sitting there clad in these thousand year old robes, smelling like camphor, no doubt, not being served any food by anyone at his royal banquet, he does seem to respond as you or I would with the, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. And I, I think that, uh, the best you can get out of this election is an attempt to sort of tweak Joseph's personality in the direction, I guess, of the later forged letters of Joseph's personality to be a little more aware that he has to put the, the empire on a paying basis as opposed to just trying to run everything, uh, from, uh, the center. And, uh, and, and just wait for people to fall in line because if, if, if not getting his chicken at his, does this mean that you forged the letters as an object lesson to him? Um, well, I wrote down a lot of notes of our conversations. Um, obviously, uh, we, we went and got some meal, uh, afterward and, uh, those conversations may or may not have turned up later somewhere else. I don't know. Yeah. Let, let's say, let's say that, uh, forging is such an awful word. I just wrote it in his handwriting. That's well, all. when you're rewriting the time stream, I'm not sure forgery is 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 actually the the correct term. Right? No, it, it certainly isn't. You're, you're editing. It's 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 editing. It's not forging. I'm editing exactly. That that's what it is. And so again, a lot of the things that he did were were very sensible. He rationalized the currency. He he did a lot of things that make people American academics in the 1930s think he was awesome. And he was patron of Mozart, which frankly by itself gets him a pass from me. It's the best thing anyone you could do. You don't want to do anything to mess with uh, with Mozart's career, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Mozart is doing plenty of that himself. And so, you, but if you can just, every time he sits down to, to give one of his unfollowed orders to Hungary, if he just thinks back and says, oh, this is like that time that I didn't get any beef <laughs> in Frankfurt, maybe there'd be a bit of, of self-realization would creep in. And uh, admittedly, trying to smarten up a Habsburg may not be the hardest thing that you can do in time travel, but it ain't the easiest thing. But just providing that memorable uh, dinner with Andre type moment at uh, his post-coronation, post-banquet nosh that might perhaps create a, a, a tendency away from uh, self-importance and a tendency toward uh, decentralization and maybe letting the Hungarians and the Bohemians run their own stuff for a little bit and see how that works out. Well, with, with or without a time machine, uh, you can't change people, but sometimes you can slightly adjust them. Uh, one thing that doesn't adjust, though, is that this podcast comes out every single week. So although we are now waving goodbye to you and perhaps finally making that appointment with Edward Gibbon in Rome, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, more of the same, yet also different stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pal grain press ask the gown arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges 
Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure this podcast is neither holy, Roman, or an empire, yet still in business, by joining such regal backers as Simon Proctor, Terry Robinson, Rich Spainauer, Chris McLaren, and Ariel Celeste. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our reluctant Phoenix design, Oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 